Well, church family, let's uh, continue our worship. Let's step into God's word this morning. And if you'll take your Bible and join me in 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5, almost to the end of your Bible, if you still kind of learn your way around the Bible. 1 Peter, chapter 5, if you need a Bible this morning, um, we can supply that for you. Just raise your hand, and we'll be glad to do that. So on your Bible, in, on your phone, however it works for you. Also, there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you would retrieve that, that'll be helpful along the way. And church family, I have to tell you, I feel a bit strange when we come to the end of a study series through a book of the Bible. Maybe even I feel a little bit sad, almost as if I was saying goodbye to an old friend, because certainly the book of First Peter has come to feel like an old friend for me as we have hung out here for the last several months. But come to the end of our Exiles study series we do today. And I'm just so thankful that the Lord has permitted us the opportunity and given us the time, really, to move chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this amazing book and to be part of of a church family that loves to do that. Not all churches like to do that, want to do that. But you do, and I am really glad that I get to be a pastor here in that way. My hope, my prayer has been, and it's going to continue to be, that this book does in us and for us what the Holy Spirit intended when he inspired Peter to write it. So if you were with us last time, last Sunday morning, you know that John, who along with his family are back in the States for a little R&R from their challenging work in East Asia. John and his family are missionaries, part of the missions team here at IBC. John was standing right here where I'm standing now, and he was unpacking for us some of these closing verses of chapter 5 and supplying us, as really only he could, some firsthand stories and experiences about the persecution of Christians, people who are, who are really paying a price for loving Jesus in their culture. John is in a cross-cultural ministry where there's a lot of persecution. And so he was able to talk about that persecution that these Christians face every single day. So picking it up at verse 6 of chapter 5, John was hanging out here last time. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, John could talk about this firsthand. Talk about suffering brothers and sisters clear on the other side of the world. And it, it was very real for us. And as he was talking last Sunday morning, I was struck by a, just kind of a bit of veiled irony that is in this section. And maybe you've seen it. Peter says, cast all your anxiety on the Lord. He cares for you. And then in the very next verse, he says, oh, be aware of the lion. He's prowling. Right now. And, and the thought occurred to me, man, Peter, if you want me not to be anxious in the face of, of persecution, maybe it would be helpful if you didn't tell me that Satan is a lion wanting to eat me up. And, and then I had this crazy thought. 
it reminded me of when, when I get on an airplane and the stewardess goes through her pre-flight speech, right? In the unlikely case of a water landing, your seat cushion is a flotation device. Should the cabin suddenly lose pressure, oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling, place the mask over your nose and mouth, and breathe normally, right? <laughs> really? Are you asking me to do that? The plane is plunging to the earth, and you're supposed to breathe normally? I don't think so. Those two don't go together for me. Nor does this idea go together for me of, of being anxious free while I know that God's sworn enemy, Satan, is hunting me down and looking to eat me up. Those two don't go together. How can we possibly live without fear? Live for Jesus in a world that for the most part wants nothing to do with him. If a spiritual war is unfolding and ramping up and the lion is on the prowl and the culture we live in is growing increasingly anti-all-things Christian, how do I live confidently, boldly, courageously, and anxiety-free? How do I do that? Well, that, church family, as you know by now, if you're a regular here at IBC, this is what the book of 1 Peter has been all about. Peter, Holy Spirit inspired, wrote this book to equip us to live in such a world that's hostile to Jesus, not wavering, not fearful, not giving up, not caving in, not quitting, when, not if, but when it's going to cost us dearly to love Jesus and name his name. Now, in our culture, we're not there right now. Not yet, but it's coming, right? As John reminded us, it's real in other places in the world. It's going to be real here one day. So what we're doing is really preparing for that, for that time. Today, we come to the end of Peter's letter, where he is going to anchor everything that he has told us for the last five chapters He's going to anchor it all in the truths that are found in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. These two verses essentially conclude the book, and they read like this. We'll put it up on the screen, but you've got it on your Bible page as well. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you like the book of First Peter condensed down into two sentences? Well, here you have it. Verses 10 and 11. And then follows, as you notice there in your Bible, three more verses that serve kind of as Peter's sincerely yours close to his letter. Verse 12, by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. 
Sincerely yours, Peter. <laughs> right? A final two-sentence summary, verses 10 and 11, and a sincerely yours closing salutation, verses 12 to 14. As you can tell on your note page, if you kind of scan that a little bit, I recommend to us that we briefly look at Peter's parting words of affection verses, in those verses 12 to 14 so that we can come back and actually hang out more with verses 10 uh, and 11, the real amen and end of the letter. Are you okay with, with us doing that, doing 12 to 14 first and then come back and pick up 10 and 11? Are you all right with that? Good because you can't do anything about it. We're, that's, that's how it's going to happen this morning, right? <laughs> oh, man. Verses 12, 13, and 14, they reflect what was the common way of ending a letter in Peter's day. We see this same pattern of ending a letter in several other of the New Testament books. Now, whereas we might write, when we write a letter, we might end it with sincerely yours or respectfully or, or lovingly yours, and then we sign our name, in the ancient world, that's not how you ended your letter. Here's how Peter ends his letter before rolling up the parchment and sending it on its way to many churches that were scattered throughout Asia Minor and were suffering for Jesus in an intense kind of way. He says this, By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. Now, Silvanus is the Greek version of the name Silas. And I thought about that as little Silas was standing up here. Don't tell him I said he was little. But Silas was standing up here. This, this Silas that Peter is referring to is the, 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 the Silas who was the traveling partner of Paul and Barnabas on a number of their, their journeys. Now he has ended up with Peter. And when he says, By Silas I have written... Peter is telling us that Silas actually served as Peter's secretary. Peter dictated this letter. He didn't write it himself. He spoke it. He dictated it. And Silas wrote down what he said and maybe even carries it by hand from Rome where Peter is all the way to the churches in Turkey. We don't know for sure if he was that, the mailman for the letter, but he certainly was the secretary for it. And Peter's mention of Silas is a reminder, I think, for us church family, of how sweet it is to do the Christian life with others and not do it alone. God never intended for you or me to be Lone Ranger Christians. And clearly, Peter was not one of those. He valued Silas very much. In fact, he calls him his faithful brother. I love that thought. Further insight into Peter's being a team player and vitally plugged into a community of faith. We see that in verse 13 when he says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, this, church family, is code talk. This is code talk. Babylon is Peter's code word for the city of Rome. Okay? The Apostle John uses this exact same code talk in some of his writings as well. Ancient Babylon in the Old Testament, if you know your Bible history a little bit, was a, a nation that was renowned for its, its power, for its brutality, for its decadence. And so Rome in the first century was known for those very same qualities. 
super powerful, incredibly brutal, and very, very decadent. Nero had launched, Nero, the Roman emperor, had launched, he had launched an empire-wide scourge of persecution upon Christians when he blamed them for setting Rome on fire in A.D. 64. And he tried to cover up his own role in that, historians believe, by blaming the Christians for that fire that just devastated the city of Rome. Well, that unleashed this incredible persecution. In fact, Nero's instigation of persecution against Christians is actually what prompts Peter to write this letter in the first place. Not wanting to implicate or draw attention to these Roman Christians living right underneath Nero's nose, Peter says, the church family here in Babylon that I am with sends its greetings. And so here again, we see this special bond of connection that ought to mark all Jesus-centered churches. The Roman church cared about the church families in Asia Minor. They cared about their suffering. They cared about what life was like for them. And no doubt they prayed for these Christian brothers and sisters, though they were a long ways away. Just like we did a little bit ago at the very beginning of our service, we prayed for our brothers and sisters and the other churches in our community. We prayed for the pastors, for the messages that would be preached. We prayed for unity amongst our various churches on the hill so that we send a united voice to a, a community that doesn't know Jesus yet, right? So we're doing what, what this Roman church was doing, and that's what Peter is saying here. When, 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 that, when those other church families hurt, you hurt with them. And when they win or they have a success, you celebrate with them. But Peter is trying to be careful. And by the way, you would not know this, but but John last week did exactly with us what Peter does here, seeking to protect the brothers and sisters that he serves with in a foreign country. He would not allow us to record his message and then put it out on the internet to be listened to by anybody who wants to which is what we do every week. He asked us not to do that out of a concern for those whose names and locations he mentioned in that message. He gave us names and cities and places, and he was concerned that, that with the Internet there would be prying government agents and eyes that could, could see that or hear that, rather, and, and then endanger his friends. He says, you're not going to record this message. We'll just enjoy it here in the moment. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son, Peter says. Now, Mark is another indication to us that Peter relished doing life in Jesus, not alone, but with others. Now, Mark, as you know, if you, ha- if you know his story, he had a pretty rough start. He abandoned Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey but eventually he does find his footing and somehow he finds Peter here in Rome in fact it is while Mark is with Peter in Rome that Mark assembles all of the material that he will actually use in his gospel that bears his name the gospel of Mark Mark wrote down Peter's account of Jesus life Holy Spirit directed and preserved that for us And so close have Peter and Mark become that the now gray-haired apostle calls him my son. 
My son Mark sends you persecuted Christians in Asia Minor greetings. Then verse 14. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Now, church family, this is an imperative command. This is a a direct imperative, grammatically speaking. It is a command. Love each other with the kiss of love. Greet each other in that way. So I'm going to ask all of you right now to stand up. Come on. Everybody's got to get up. Nobody sits down for this part. You've got to stand up. This is a command. Stand up, every single person. We're not going to go any farther until you're all standing. Okay, great. Now, now, find someone who is near you and with all of the emotion and love of Christian brotherhood, I want you to turn and either shake their hand or give them a big hug. And you're going... can take a seat. (laughs) Now, if you had been standing where I'm standing, you should have seen how the eyeballs got really big about the moment that you thought, I've got to kiss somebody, right? (laughs) Oh, that was priceless. Listen, what you just did was the cultural equivalent of the kiss of love that Peter mentions here. Hopefully we didn't mess with your comfort zone too much in that little moment there. The the command to practice the kissing greeting is repeated often in the New Testament. This is the only place where we see this. It's at least four other places in Scripture. It was the culturally appropriate way in Peter's day to, to, to show brotherly, sisterly type of genuine affection. Amongst Christians, the, the kiss was on the cheek. It was, it was always between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Never was it on the lips. But it's how you greeted back then. And you shared love. You showed love in a tangible kind of, of appropriately cultural way. Now, our culturally appropriate practice is obviously very different from that. And so we need to practice this directive in a culturally appropriate way. We shake hands. We do the kind of the fist bump thing. Uh, we may do the manly hug thought, or or if it's a woman to a man, we do kind of that 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 reach around arm thing, right? We we do that, right? Because that's culturally appropriate for us to do that. But the point is, we are expressing a genuine and sincere affection and love for one another that is rooted in our shared love of Jesus. That's why we do that. Uh, On Friday night, I was at a gathering with a number of others in one of the homes of our church family here. And and I knew where we were headed this morning. And so I was definitely dialed in. And I was watching as the Christians in this gathering were hugging and and shaking hands and, and, and just had their arms around one another or patting each other on the back as a, as a greeting. And it was just fun and rich to watch that play itself out. Peter knows that this is very important, especially to these weary 
persecuted, harassed Christians in Asia Minor. We're physical beings and Christian love appropriately expressed in a physical, tangible way. Man, that can be comforting. That can be affirming and encouraging, especially when you're all beat up from, from your culture just being hard on you. That kiss, that, that kiss of love for them, well, that was very, very helpful. Now, if we're just keeping it real here as the Bible church family, some of us could stand to ramp up this in our lives a little bit. Some of us haven't touched a fellow Christian since the flu epidemic of 04. <laughs> we could stand to touch a little bit more. Others of us probably need to turn it back a notch or two because it, it, it's, not, it, it, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's so much, right? But, but here's the thing. None of us is exempt or, or can say the kiss of love is optional. It's not optional for us. And that's Peter's point. We show our brotherly love and our affection for one another in a tangible but an appropriate kind of way. Yes, we show it by acts of kindness. Yes, we show it by our words of encouragement. Yes, we show this, this kind of brotherly affection through our serving of one another. But we show it. A church family known for our genuine love and our appropriate expression of that love, man, that's what we want to be. We want people saying, boy, those Christians over at IBC, they are good kissers. Even though we never actually kiss, right? But you get the idea. That's what we want to be known for, among many other things, especially loving Jesus. And then Peter's final sincerely yours moment here, verse 14. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He closes with the same words that he began this letter five chapters earlier. Chapter 1, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peace to all of you, dear Christians, who are going through fiery trials of persecution for loving Jesus. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That is a beautiful statement. This underscores what Peter's readers needed most. Peace in the midst of, of really suffering hard at the hands of their culture. They can't count on the world to bring them any peace. That's not going to happen. Instead, their peace will come as they find sanctuary, they find safety in their relationship with God that's made possible through their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 puts it like this, but it's the same idea. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, pronounced not guilty in the court of heaven by faith, we have what, church? Peace with God, right? Can't miss that. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When you know that you know that you know that peace has been secured between sinful you and a holy God by Jesus' death and resurrection and your faith in that death and resurrection, when you know that in the deepest part of who you are and you really own it, that, that there's nothing, there's nothing that can steal that from you. Nothing can take that from you. That is peace, man. That's real peace. And Peter wanted that for his readers. 
I would just ask, do you have that peace today between you and God? Do you have that peace between sinful you and a holy God through faith in Jesus Christ? I hope you do. I hope you do. And if you don't, I would say to you, you can. You can have that peace. You can have that peace today. It'll, it'll begin with these words. Jesus, I need you. That's how you begin to move towards this kind of peace. Jesus, I need you. And, and then, man, you just hold on because your life's about to change in an amazing way. And, and if we can help you begin that journey towards true peace with God, we'd love to be a part of that. Find me. Find, find one of your friends here in, in this church family and, and let's get on the road to faith with Jesus. Now, if we go back up to verse 12, we pick up the last part of Peter's closing salutation. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now, you may have thought that we were going to completely skip over that piece, but, but we're not. Peter says, my dear readers, brothers and sisters, never forget why I wrote you. Stand firm in the grace of God. Now, for five chapters, Peter says, I've been telling you about God's grace. For five chapters. In chapter 1, I told you about, about God's saving grace, His calling and electing grace, His grace that brought you from death to life, from darkness to light. I told you about His grace that purchased you with holy blood, more precious than silver or gold. His grace made known to you through the living and abiding written word of God. I told you about all of that grace in chapter 1. And then he says in chapter 2, I told you about His choosing grace that placed you as living stones into His spiritual house. His grace that made you part of a royal priesthood, his sanctifying grace that enables you to say no to sin, his grace to be the best citizens, the best employees, the best neighbors that you can be in your unbelieving culture. I told you about all that grace in chapter two. In chapter three, I told you about his grace for your marriage and for your home. His grace that would help you forgive others when you are wronged by them. His grace to strive always for the unity of your church family. His grace to make you bold to share saving life with others every time you get a chance. I told you about that grace in chapter 3. In chapter 4, I told you about His grace that would enable you to be self-controlled in an out-of-control world. His grace that would empower you to show stretchy love. Do you remember that, church? That morning? Talking about stretchy love. You would love each other and you would love strangers with this stretchy love. His grace that would equip you to serve your church family from out of your special giftedness. The way God equipped you to serve. His grace to suffer the fiery trials of persecution no matter how severe they should, be, they should come become. I told you about the grace of God in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, I told you about God's grace given to those who, who lead your church family, who shepherd your flock, His grace that moves you to be able to submit to their leadership, His grace to live humbly with a Jesus kind of humility, not thinking more or less of yourself, but just thinking of yourself less. And His grace to resist that prowling lion whose name is Satan. 
For five chapters, I've written about God's grace. I just didn't use those words. But that's what I've been talking about. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Yeah? Amen is right. Be faithful to what I've written to you. Persevere in it to the very end, never giving up, never quitting and saying I'm done, ever. And the way that all of that's going to happen is to live, quite frankly, church family, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 5. Live in the truths contained there. For as we said at the, at the very beginning, they really are the anchor for the book. If you only get two verses out of the book, these are the two you want. So once again, let me read them for us. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, we've just been talking about the grace of God, the God of all grace, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let it be so. So this is Peter's summary of the entire book. The grace he wants all of his readers to stand firm in. It's there, verses 10 and 11. So he begins by repeating something that he has said earlier in the letter about Christians who suffer for their faith in their culture, he reminds us that it, all of it is, is a temporary suffering. He wants us to make sure we note that. Now, last week, John said it this way, and, and he was kind of tickled by the fact that he'd come up with this phrase, and he shared it with us more than once. He said, pain is temporary. Remember this? Pain is temporary. The pleasure of being in the presence of Jesus is forever. Pain is temporary. The pleasure of being in the presence of Jesus is forever. After you have suffered a little while, a little while, it's a temporary suffering. This life is fleeting. James tells us that our lives are like a vapor here today and gone in a moment. And so truly from that perspective, everything in this life that we experience is a little while, right? It's all a little while. But when we're in a trial, man, it feels like it's never going to end. We think it's always going to be this way. But Peter says Christians live forever. And because that's true, he says someday everything we go through in this life will seem to us to have been very brief, just a little while. And so he calls his suffering readers to remember that. Paul said of his suffering experiences for loving Jesus, he called it his light and momentary afflictions. He had that perspective, didn't he, that Peter's calling for here. The Bible always sees trials and suffering and persecution for Jesus' sake through this this lens of eternity. And when compared to the grand plan that God has for all of us, uh, waiting for all of us, his people through Christ, every Christian only suffers for a little while, truly, for a little while. Now, that's a helpful perspective and one that we want to keep in mind. But, as I said, when we are in that suffering place, we could use a little more help. 
And Peter recognizes this. The promise of a better tomorrow does give me hope. I'm encouraged by that, but I need something right now for today. And so he urges us to find help in our present trials by resting in God's, once again, God's sovereign grace. After you've suffered a little while, the God of, what's the next word? All grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God's grace. God's grace is his undeserved favor, his unearned, unmerited goodness, sovereignly and freely distributed as he wills. God is the God of all grace. He's the source of all grace. I circled that word all in my Bible. I never want to read this verse again and not catch that that moment there. There's no limit to his grace. It's an infinite grace. He has all of it that we will ever need, church. Ever. He's never going to run out of grace. He doesn't need to ration his grace. When he lavishes his grace on others, that doesn't diminish how much we're going to get. Right? He is the God of all grace. And Peter makes sure to say that. He's the God of all grace who has called you. The calling of God. You're familiar with that expression perhaps. In the Bible, that, that's, that, that, that refers to God's saving initiative in your life. He called you. He summons you to faith in his son. His call is his guarantee not only to begin your Christian life, but also to take it all the way to its end. Yeah? And we see that here. The Holy Spirit through Peter doesn't say, God called you to initially believe. That's true, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that God has called you to suffer for a little while, although that is true. It says he has called you to his what? Eternal glory in Christ. Is that important? That is hugely important. God has called us and committed himself to us for the ultimate outcome, which is what? Eternal glory. And what is that? That's heaven. That's that's being with him forever. And so, so God is committed in this statement to ensuring that we not just start the race with him, but we what? We finish it. We finish with him. Grace to finish the race. This is us in heaven. And someday on a new earth, the scriptures tell us. This is it. This is eternal life and eternal joy and being forever with God because he called us to faith in Jesus. It's not what we do. It's what God has already done, right? Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will what, church? Bring it to completion. Bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, this verse is saying God finishes what he starts in your life. He called you. He's going to finish the work. Hear Jesus on the eve of the crucifixion. What does he say? John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. That's finishing the race, isn't it? That's not just the start. That's the end. God called us to be with him. God's effectual call begins the work of salvation, but God's call is just the beginning. It's also the middle, and it is the end. Being called to his eternal glory, that's God's guarantee that every single genuine believer in Jesus is going to persevere through every hazard, through every trial, through every moment of persecution, all the way to the end. And then, when this life is done, well, that's when real life begins, right? That's when it begins. The Apostle Paul said it this way, if you flip your note page over, top of the page, 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You believe it? I believe it. The grace of God called us. The grace of God sustains us. The grace of God completes our salvation. Live in that space. Live in that grace. And you will stand firm. That's Peter's thought. And just how does God keep us in his grace? Especially when it gets really hard. The culture's hammering on you for loving Jesus. How does God keep us from giving up and walking away? Church, how does he do that? How does he keep us standing firm? Well, the Holy Spirit says he gives us nothing less than his own fourfold personal promise. After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, there are four Key action verbs in verse 10. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. When do we need each of these actions of God in our life as a Christian? Daily. That's true. But we especially need them at certain moments, for sure. On your note page, we need these actions from God when we are foolish and we choose poorly. And we become pride-filled and we blow it, right? Then we need this action from God. We need this action from God when, we, when doubt creeps in. We question God. We question our faith. We need this action from God. When we're weak, when we're vulnerable, when we're weary because of the struggle, we need this action from God. And when we're losing our spiritual footing, we're slipping and we're, we're wondering, is it really worth it? We need this action from God. And so God himself, Peter says, God himself promises, when you blow it, I will what? I will restore you. And when your heart is threatened by doubts, I will. And when your resolve for the fight is ebbing away, I will. And when you are in danger of slipping off the narrow way, I will, I will establish you. These are promises. These are promises, brothers and sisters, rooted in God, 
rooted in who he is. And there isn't anything more certain in the universe than what he says here in verse 10. When God promises something, man, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. God himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Numbers 23, 19. God's not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Of course not. He's God. God has called us to his eternal glory. He finishes what he starts. He's promised us that he will do that. And church family, I can't think of anyone better suited to make this declaration to struggling Christians. God will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you than our guy Peter. No one better suited to make this statement than him. He's the famous denier of Jesus, isn't he? Oh, man. He blew it big. In the moment when Jesus needed him most, pride and self-confidence filled his heart, exposing him to that prowling lion on that night. Jesus warned him, but Peter didn't listen. Doubt and fear overtook him. The interrogations of a little girl tapped him out. No strength left. And he lost his sense of footing, denying that he even knew Jesus. I don't know that man. Not once, not twice, but three times. The rooster crows and Peter runs out of that courtyard, his vision blurred by his tears. Can you imagine his despair? Can you imagine his shame? Jesus will never forgive me. How could he, how could he forgive me? Jesus will never want me around again. Jesus has surely given up on me. Don't think those thoughts didn't race through his mind. But he was wrong. He was wrong. Jesus finds him, John chapter 21, and comes to Peter and he asks Peter a question, not once or twice, but three times. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you. What does Jesus say? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Three denials. Three restorations. He will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Why? Because he's promised. And he never breaks a promise. Christian, if you're here this morning, but you're just barely here, because you've, you, you've blown it and you've blown it big and you know you've blown it big or, or you're doubting God in some way or, or your spiritual strength is ebbing and it's been ebbing for a while and you're just on the edge or you feel like the ground underneath you is marbles and you can't seem to get any traction in your Christian life. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. God is a promise keeper and he has promised that he will restore and he will say it, confirm, and he will, and he will, why? Because he's got and he promised. 
and he never breaks a promise. When that old lion comes prowling around and accuses, saying, you're a miserable failure, we may have to admit, yeah, I am, I am. But my God knows that. And he died for my failures. And he loves me. And he's promised to carry on his work of salvation in me and bring me to his eternal glory. This had to be so encouraging to Peter, Peter's persecution-weary readers. Spiritual exiles in their own culture. God's going to keep his promise. And with that, Peter ends his letter with essentially a declaration in which he says, God cannot be beaten. He cannot be beaten. He's going to triumph. He's going to win. Verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let it be so. Dominion means power. Dominion means authority. God has the power. He has the authority over everything forever and ever. Let it be so. Let it be so. Yes, there is a lion on the prowl. He's a roaring lion. Satan is very powerful. But he is not God. He does not have the dominion. This world is under his sway. It grows increasingly hostile towards God and those who pledge allegiance to Jesus. Our culture cries for tolerance, and yet it becomes increasingly intolerant of those who believe in the Bible and the one who says, I will love you all the way to the cross. The day is coming when we may be exiles, brothers and sisters, in our own country. Spiritual exiles. But the world and our culture, they are not God. Our God has the dominion forever and ever. Amen. First John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and you've overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. And it was Jesus only hours before the cross who said, I have said these things to you that you may have what? Peace. In this world, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Dominion belongs to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So... Stand firm. Amen. Yes, let's pray together, church. Amen. Oh, what a joy to be in your word. And oh, how thankful we are, Lord Jesus, that that you have done this amazing saving work that is going to guarantee that we will spend eternity with you. How we thank you for the peace we have with the living God through you. And how we thank you for your precious word and for the gift of giving us these many months in First Peter together. It's been such a joy. But the one thing we would ask of you in this moment is that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it. Truly, standing firm until the day we see you face to face. Either when we go to you or you come to us. We'll be happy with either one of those thoughts in your good time. Bless my brothers and sisters and our friends who are gathered here today. Lord, all glory to you, for you, the one, you are the one who has the power and the authority forever and ever. And all together we say amen and amen. Let's stand together, church, and close with a song appropriate to our time.